Welcome, everybody. Um, so, just before I get going, um, I, I've started writing my sermons. I find that helps me not get lost on my way to my final point. Um, but man, I've really like poured a lot into this sermon. It kind of like really did uh, take a lot out of me. I have scrapped so much, and I hardly made it to the end. So um, um, I will just try to do my best here, and um, please be gracious with me and patient. And um, I've, I've tried to keep it at 45 minutes. I even had my mom, I called my mom, and I said, Read this and see how long it takes you to read it out loud like you're preaching it and time yourself. And, um, and so that way I could keep on writing because I just had so much that I wanted to write, so much that was on my mind. And I've just been, you know, I write it and then I have to throw so much away. And so we have what we have. Um, but I, I think I, I ultimately think this will bless everyone. This has blessed me tremendously just to air this out for myself. So let's go. Uh, Lord, we ask you to open our minds at this time. We have come here to conform our life into your life, our will into your will. Please soften our hearts. Relieve us of our will to sin and lead us into the life of heaven on earth by reforming your image within us through and through to completion. Amen. So yeah, um, I think why this one really got to me is because fasting is what we're going to be talking about, and it really is um, more of what we have to offer in sanctification, um, and, and our place in, in coming to know God. And um, unfortunately, it's really neglected, um, and so... I'm really excited to talk about how we can do this on a consistent basis and why and hopefully help um, cultivate a love, uh, um, begin a relationship of falling in love with this uh, discipline. So today's scripture will be Matthew 6, 16 through 18. And we're literally going to be here for a second. This is a, a topical conversation. It's more of what I took for it. Um... And so, um, nonetheless, let me read the scripture, and then we'll be jumping over to Genesis here pretty quickly. Um, so, um, it begins in verse 16. Now, whenever you fast, do not make a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they distort their faces so that they will be noticed by the people when they are fasting. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But as for you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by people, but by your father who is in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And there you have it. Um, fasting is not only a command, but it's one of it's in the most foundational sermon Christ teaches the Sermon on the Mount. Right? Um, even still, it seems like um, a lot of us have a rather vague and distant relationship to this spiritual di discipline. Um, even though um, Christ promised that this would, there would be a reward in this, 
we seem to have placed it in a very specialized place. Like it's only for catastrophes and severe grievances, which is partly true. However, tonight I want to suggest that the reality is two extremes, which um, we should try to balance according to our circumstances. And that be whenever we are in that catastrophe is one extreme of fasting. But the other is that this is just a mundane spiritual practice that should be done consistently. Um, but in alignment with why we see it in such a, this extreme way, you know, Scripture does validate that. David fasted for like seven days to repent of his most terrific sin, which led to his restoration. Uh, similarly, Nehemiah fasted um, once he learned of all the troubles of the Jews. Um, he fasted. He had this huge fast and prayer and asked for God to restore the Jews back from their exile, right? And God honored that. And, 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 and um, However, it wasn't just him asking God for a favor whenever he did that. Um, rather, he was repenting for the Jews um, during that time. That prayer, if we review it, it is full of repentance. One part, he says, yes, I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly. It is this heart-wrenching repentance that is that the fast is only facilitating and even expressing. Um, thus, um, by repenting and, and, and with the fast, he invited the grace of God to restore the Jewish people. And um, finally, another biblical way we see in the Levitical law, um, the only Jewish celebration that required a fast was the Day of Atonement, which again is like the pinnacle of the Jewish year. It, it would be our modern day Easter, right? Like, like, like it's, that is the, the greatest religious celebration that they had. And um, whenever, just before the Day of Atonement, um, the Jews had to be cleansed of their sins and they would actually fast and um, devote their whole day to repentance to um, initiate this restoration um, of them and their nation to God. Um, so we see that, um, yes, fasting is used in these extreme circumstances. Um, and even God institutes it in these extreme circumstances. But what should we make of this? Um, that fasts are only for catastrophes? Not quite, but rather that um, a fast is practiced just to become excellent in your repentance. Um, after all, God never promised to save those who fast, and that's not what I want to suggest. But he saves those who repent, right? He doesn't save those who fast, but he saves those who repent. And fasting is the traditional most biblical tool that has helped the greatest saints in Scripture perform their repentance with excellence. Um, so if you would like to become excellent in your repentance, then fast. Um, and God will be faithful, and, and he will give you your own 
day of atonement, your own day of being restored through this repentance, right? However, um, maybe some of us think we are done repenting. And um, I would challenge that notion. And I would prefer to say that we are going to undergo constant repentance until the day God makes us complete and perfect. Um, Look at John the Baptist, even, um, who, whenever he was converting all these people, um, preparing them for Christ, he said, bear fruit that befits repentance. And what what I think is, does bearing fruit take only a single day of work? No, I I would think someone would say um, bearing fruit um, is not just working one day, but working day by day for the rest of their lives, harvest by harvest by harvest. Um, And so um, an even better proof, though, that we need continual repentance would be an honest assessment of my of our behaviors, right? Um, many of us who are saved still have failed to um, live up to Paul's calling to become slaves of righteousness, right? He said that Christ died so we could become slaves of righteousness. And if we look at ourselves, um, have we made it, right? How good of slaves have we become? Um, And if we look at the great saints, like even King David, he would have no problem admitting that he had room for growing in his righteousness. He could admit this easily, not because he was flippant or complacent, but because he was humble. Um, And God shows his love to us while we're still sinners, and he could accept that. Um, He could accept that God will still help him make gains as they struggle with their sin. Um, so finally, even if um, it takes a month or even years of righteousness, um, David even knew that the serpent was tempting him with old delights from his old life into a new fall, right? Um, we all remember the story of Bathsheba. Thus, it is normal to struggle and to repent um, over and over again, and even um, for you can even repent for entertaining temptation. And as we continue to fall more deeply in love with God, as he continues to help us day by day, we actually start to bear the fruit that keep with repentance. So um, although we aren't perfect, we still have peace, um, knowing that we move from glory to glory and that we are being incrementally purified of our old and worldly self and moving into the new. Um, However, many of us probably still feel like we are in the initial stages of this process. Or maybe many of us have begun but have become confused along the way. Or maybe we have uh, made a start and just become tired and complacent. Um, Therefore, in this talk about fasting, I want us to look under the hood of the human soul to learn what we have to work with and what scripture uh, says we need to get back on the right track. And I believe this will help us naturally see why fasting is such an essential tool 
for retraining our souls to become the slaves of righteousness that yearn for God. So, um, if we're going to talk about the soul, the first thing I have to do is confess it's abundantly deep, right? Um, Proverbs 20 verse 5 says, The purpose of man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. We experience this depth when we are confused about how we feel about something or when we have conflicting feelings or desires uh, for what we need to do or when we seem to look for our purpose, we fish for clarity and we can't seem to catch it. Um, However, the righteous man with understanding will draw it out. And I think um, seeking this understanding of our soul um, will help us draw more purpose for the tool of fasting that will serve our desire to unite and to know God. So there are many perspectives on how to understand what man is. Furthermore, we are such deep creatures, excuse me, that our existence truly does transcend words and ideas. However, the Bible offers a simplified system that can help us understand where we are today. If um, you have your Bibles, you can actually now follow me over to Genesis 2-7. And I want you all to just see this, this very simple verse, and we're going to draw, draw on it to get our picture going. Um, because here we see a very explicit picture of what we're made up of. Um, the picture shows that God formed man's body from the ground and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being, right? So that there's this three steps to the process. And this shows that man is made three parts, body, soul, and spirit. The word at the end for being literally can be translated as soul. It's translated as soul all throughout your Bible. Um, meanwhile, the word for spirit has always been attached to the word for breath in Hebrew. In Genesis 1-2, Um, You'll see at the very beginning, it says the spirit of God hovered over the waters. The spirit of God could also be read as the breath of God. The spirit and the breath are synonymous. Um, So we can safely say that when God, who is spirit, breathes into mankind, especially with the breathing, it is a spirit. And finally, um, the bodies explicitly mentioned it um, as being formed of the earth. Um, Now, for this sermon, I I actually heavily depended on Theophan the Recluse, um, but he's such a wealth of information that um, I'm going to just kind of paraphrase some essential ideas about each facet of body, soul, and spirit. And this will be kind of technical But um, I imagine it's going to help us iron out later. It's going to prevent later confusion. And so please um, bear with me here. Um, So first we have our bodies, 
and these are works of art made by God. Um, and they facilitate our life on earth. And um, this is the most mundane description, right? The body obviously just um, needs to create energy to survive, and it needs muscles and a, a skeleton working together so you can move. Um, finally, it has a nervous system. And, and it sounds silly to say, but, but we need to address this, that um, all of our desires move through this system, right? So all of our desires and our thoughts are facilitated in our body. So we have to really, um, we have to really soak that in. Um, next, we have our soul. And the Bible uses a familiar word um, that can help us understand what the soul is. It, it calls the soul suke which um, we literally spell or translate into psyche. And so the root word, it's basically the root word for psychology. Um, thus, just think that psychology means to study your soul, right? Supposed to. <laughs> or is supposed to. And so this includes the way... Um, this includes the way your brain is reasoning, um, what you're feeling in your heart, and how you're managing your various desires and building up your values, right? And um, even how do you maneuver your social life? These are all functions and aspects of your soul. Um, and ultimately, it makes all of our decisions. And Another thing about the soul is it's important to think that it is basically all-encompassing of who you are. Um, if we look at this scripture um, carefully, and you see that the soul was created when God combined a spirit with a body. If you look at that at 2-7, you'll see that a spirit and a body were combined, and then man became, and then man became a living soul. So it's expansive. It overlaps everything. Um, it's, it's its own entity, but it's constantly operating within the realm of your body and your, and your, your spirit, okay? Um, and so, you know, that, that's kind of confusing, but it makes sense why people need a therapist, right? Um, <laughs> so um, finally... The, there's the human spirit. Um, it's from God, and it always seeks to be back with God. It is most satisfied with serving God. And when we are called to taste and see that God is good, this describes a spiritual exper experience of communing with God who is spirit. And when God says, I will write my law on your heart, he's talking about reigniting your spirit's consciousness that little voice that echoes the will of God in your mind with the Holy Spirit, right? This part being from God is infinitely valuable, a treasure that is stored within us. But let's back up and ask, why does this matter? The main reason that this conversation is so foundational to the biblical conversation um, is, is about sanctification. And when the Bible tells us a story which describes our body and soul as having a hierarchy or a righteous order, then everything is proper and we live in intimacy with God. 
However, these have fallen into disarray, um, leaving us to leaving us blind to God and ensnared by the enemy. Um, except when Christ came, he made the way for our being to be restored to its proper order. This conversation ultimately culminates in, in uh, Romans chapter 8, which is the longest, most thorough conversation about sanctification and what our repentance should look like. Um, it's very important, and it frames the whole matter as a struggle between our spirit and our body for control and authority over the soul, which leads us to either life lived for God or a life lived for selfish desires and even against God. So this is why we're doing this. If we can lay this foundation then we can deeply appreciate and understand Romans 8. Um, if that happens, we can clearly see why fasting is a tool given by Christ that is promised to be blessed by the Father. However, before we go there, I want to depend on Theophan the Recluse to lay out the story of man and God as contained in Scripture in light of the body and the soul and the spirit. All right? So just a little context. Y'all have heard a lot from Theophan the Recluse. Um, he was a monk, and he worked at one of the most premier theological colleges in Russia and um, made a career out of that. And his excellence and devotion eventually led him to become dean of the school. Um, and even then, he became a bishop of the church, meaning like he was the leader of leaders, right? Um, he was among the, the host of those who really tried to take care of and shepherd the big church, right? And um, his teaching was so powerful that it's attributed for paving the way for what was called a, a, a renaissance of prayer that spread throughout Russia in the 1800s. And so he wrote many letters to his spiritual children, which are a massive source of inspiration for people today. And tonight I just want to share from one that I found um, incredibly enlightening. And so we start with a discussion about the spirit and how mankind lived with God in the garden. And it reads, the essential attributes of the spirit or consciousness, oh, sorry, the essential attributes of the spirit are consciousness and freedom, while the essential movements of it are confession of God the creator. Providence and requiter, which basically means um, he's the king of kings and he pays people back according to their deeds. Um, the spirit has a feeling of complete dependence upon God. The feeling that everything is expressed with a loving view toward God. An unceasing attention to God and reverential fear before him with the desire to always create that which is pleasing before him in accordance with the statutes of the conscience, which bears witness to everything right and wrong in God's eyes, I would add. And with renunciation of everything, um, the spirit with renunciation of everything seeks to taste the one God and to live and rejoice with him alone. Man has been given consciousness and freedom in the spirit, not so that he may become conceited and do as he pleases, 
but so that having acknowledged everything he has is from God, he may live in God and freely and consciously head toward that one goal. When he is so dispossessed or disposed, then he abides in God and God abides in him. And when God abides in a man, he gives the spirit the power to control the soul and body and also everything that is outside of them. So let's stop here and emphasize that what is the original state of humanity? And that's what I've drawn up here on the board. Um, He fashioned a body, soul, and spirit. And however, we were primarily spiritual. And the spirit was somewhat of a king over the body and soul. And it kept everything constantly moving to God. And then that allowed God, that made space for God to constantly be moving towards us. And so humanity was enveloped in God because the spirit reigned. Because the spirit reigned in righteousness. And so, um, that last statement that we read was of vital importance. It says, when God abides in man, he gives the human spirit the power to reign over the soul and body, so that, and also everything outside of them. Thus, the life of devotion to him is reinforced by grace, and all things continue working together in a perfect order to the glory of God. This perfect ordering of everything was the most natural aspect of everything the human did. Um, And this is where it's fair for us to ask, is it natural for us, right? This is helpful. Is it natural for us to order everything around God? What about our politicians, our news, our newsies? Is it natural for them to order everything around God? Or has something gone wrong? Do people seem peculiar, peculiarly selfish instead, right? And so, um, Theophan does, however, give us hope by hinting that the glory, by hinting at the glory of salvation by Christ, by saying that the original state was man abiding in God and God abiding in man. Because this is what Christ now commands us to do in John 15. And so we take hope because we know that um, we are closer to this reality than the reality that we see on the news. But let's continue on with the story. So speaking about the serpent, Theophan says, A spirit which fell primarily because of pride envied the humans and knocked them from the path after inciting them to break the small commandment that was given them. He flatteringly suggested that by tasting the forbidden fruit, they would taste something they just could not imagine. They would become just like gods, little g. They believed and they tasted. However, perhaps that may have not been so bad 
if the Spirit had not poured such horribly offensive thoughts and feelings towards God into them. He convinced them that God forbade them to eat from the tree because by doing so, they too would become gods. That is what they believed. They believed this. They believed um, that they could not help having such, sorry, having believed this, they could not help having such blasphemous thoughts toward God, such as the idea that he envied them and treated them without benevolence. The complete falling away from God was accomplished by a certain aversion and hostile revolt against God. It was for this reason that God had to abandon such transgressors, and the living union was disrupted. God is everywhere, and he maintains all things, but he enters into creatures only when they surrender themselves to him. When they are self-absorbed, he does not violate their self-rule. Excuse me. He continues to keep and maintain them, but does not enter inside them. And so, what does he show us here? But that, sorry, I got to get this going here. So he shows us that we were still body, soul, and spirit, right? Spirit, soul, body. And that was, that was mankind, right? However, now instead of us looking to God... Instead, our spirit looked to its self. It became selfish. And then this, in turn, locked God out. This became our new way of being, that the spirit only cared to find the self, to validate the self, to serve the self. And so Adam and Eve took and ate of the fruit, being selfish, and neglected God. Um, and so what we see here, though, is that um, Satan first came and he attacked the soul. Um, he used thoughts. He used deception to make us adverse to God, which replaced our spiritual desire to please God with a self-centered approach to life. Um, so we can see this in the world. Um, there's no shortage of thinking about ourselves. Um, we can see this in ourselves. And um, the world would even call it foolish for us to not think about ourselves, right? Um, like, like the world does that. You got to take care of yourself first and then you can take care of other people. Um, and there's a valid logic to that. I mean, even that, that is in the Bible to somewhat, to some extent. But um, being logical doesn't mean that they've used it in a true way. They haven't used it in the biblical sense. And um, we don't want to build our lives, make it logical. We want to make it built around the truth. So um, what is the truth? Well, the truth is, that not even a sparrow falls to the ground without your Father in heaven knowing about it. So please don't be anxious for tomorrow, but have faith that if you seek first the kingdom of heaven, all else will be added to you. 
Satan attacked our souls with lies, and therefore we need to begin reconnecting with the truth before we can establish, reestablish our spiritual life. However, this is helpful to see um, the transformation, but it's not as um, important to fasting, so we got to move on. Um, that's more about prayer for clarification. That's more about prayer coming back into the truth. Um, when the subversion of the order and the interrelationship of the parts of our nature took place, this is Theophan speaking, man could no longer see things in their true perspective, and he could not keep his needs and desires and feelings in their proper place. These needs and desires and feelings were thrown into confusion and disorder, and disorder became their characteristic feature. But this condition, which is of course evil, would have been even tolerable if the passions had not otherwise entered and tyrannized man. Have you seen how wrath racks an angry man like a finger, like a fever? How envy permeates someone who is envious until the poor man is green? How a mournful man is so consumed by grief that he is reduced to skin and bones. All the passions are like this. They enter inside us along with selfishness as our forebears inwardly uttered, I myself. Selfishness took root inside them in this poison and this satanic seed. And from this then developed the horde of passions, pride, envy, hatred, grief, despondency, Greed, sensuality, with all their numerous and multifaceted consequence. Finally, he concludes, That is what the illness consists of. The spirit became conceited and self-willed. Because of this, it lost its authority and fell under the rule of the soul and body and everything outward. So, the way we moved was we were right here. We became conceited. We consumed the spirit, or um, we became selfish. And this actually made space. Um, this actually collapsed the spirit's rule. Since God was cut off, the spirit could no longer stand on top. And so, we were restructured internally to have the body as king. And to have the soul even as king over the spirit, which fell to the bottom. And all in this downward pursuit now into the self. Because, and all of this is forever reinforced, not forever, but this was infinitely reinforced actually is a better word by the passions and these became our new God so you could still say that God is way up here and um, Genesis, <laughs> Genesis would say that you know God is no longer ruling but death rules
And Paul loves to use the language of death ruling over us. And so that is what Theophan has tried to show, that this is, um, this is where we are. This is the current state of the unsaved man. Um, and I think he just did such an incredible job at putting it um, so succinctly. And um, it's important to clarify what he sees a passion as. Envy, greed, um, lust, gluttony. It's a body, it's a desire that comes from the body or the soul that uses the infinity of the spirit. The spirit's from God, it's of God, it's infinite. It has infinite energy. And a passion is a desire that is now taken on a, a nature of infinity to it. And so let me, let, me, let me clarify that, because that's pretty crazy to say, right? Um, where can we see that, right? If this is true, then we should be able to see it in the world. And I found this profoundly um, um, eye-opening. Um, but it's scary, right, that, that we have infinite desires. Um, so, you know, I have a... Ecclesiastes tries to make sense of this whenever um, the philosopher says all things have become wearisome. Man is not able to tell and the eye is not satisfied with seeing nor the ear filled with hearing. Um, personally, I find this especially appears in children. Think about how they respond to pain, right? Um, they get, you know, something that hurts, but they wail with grief and despair, right? Why do, they, why, do they, why do they wail so long, long before even the pain's gone and they still wail? And it's because in their lack of experience of life, they perceive this pain with that ounce of infinity, that, that, that this, is, this is all that there is in their life now, right? And of course, time eventually trains them to move beyond this. Um, but this is also why people fear failure, because what they really fear is that once someone becomes a failure, they will be one forever, right? There's no recovering from failure. That's the infinity of, that's the abuse of the spirit to create this sense of eternal realities for things that are actually just turbulent. They go up and down. Sometimes I fail. Sometimes I succeed. Sometimes I feel great. Sometimes I hurt, right? That's just life. But since our spirit's gone out of order, we can feel these things as if we're going to die if we never get them. They're infinite. Um, so finally, for some quick um, biblical context, a lot of, um, after the fall, a lot of bad st stuff starts to happen where mankind is obviously seen as selfish. Think of Lamech, who takes pride for killing people in order to literally reinforce his ego, to reinforce like his power as king, his social status. He is happy to murder someone for that. Um, there's also the Tower of Babel, where um, humanity literally plans to compete with God. 
That's what the Tower of Babel is about. Babel means the gate of God. They're going to build their own gate to God. Like, hey, God, we figured we'd pop in on you, right? Um, that's infinite pride. If, if anything is not infinite pride, that is infinite pride. Um, and this culminates in Genesis 6 um, in the flood narrative. And God finally says, My spirit shall not abide in man continually, for he is flesh. And that is a body infused with the passions. That is being, man has become flesh. Because God would love to abide with man's spirit. But that no longer rules. So, what is our best option at this point? First, we need an intervention from God himself. So let's all flip to Romans 5. And I'm going to be dabbling around Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8. Hopefully trying to land this plane on Romans 8. But this is just my most favorite group of scripture. I couldn't stop playing around here. This is where I just had a heyday. Couldn't finish this sermon. Um, (laughs) And so... um, We're going to go to Romans 5 because we need to look at what is the intervention of God. And I already know that I cannot compete with the exceedingly great Apostle Paul. Um, I can only join him in saying, thank God that we have been redeemed, right? That God has intervened. So, starting in chapter 5, verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, Since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in our hope of sharing the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint us, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, which has been given to us. While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Why, one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man one will dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we are now justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if we... We're enemies, um, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Not only so, but we also rejoice in God through the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received our reconciliation. What beautiful words. God showed his love for us. That while, while we were still yet sinners, he died for us. While we were still weak and unable to fix what we had broken, Christ died for us. 
Nobody could ever conceive of dying for someone that is infinitely, perpetually self-centered. But um, the love of God is that incredible. And because he loves to heal these broken things, these things that we have broken, um, we can now start to move from glory to glory. And so we have to first look at the very beginning, 5.1. Paul says we were justified by faith. I want to note that faith means you trust God again. You trust God again. So therefore, the, the first barrier to be broken is our selfishness, right? And then we'll, we'll draw later. Um, and um, we stop deluding ourselves, and we overcome, um, we, you know, we stop deluding ourselves and trying to take care of everything, right? Because we're so selfish. If we just would take care of ourselves and get everything in line, everything would be perfect. No, none of that. Instead, we have faith. We relax. We deeply relax, right? From just all our desires and all the things we think we need to get done. And we just say, I trust you, Lord, because you are good and you love mankind. Paul also said in the scripture that we have obtained access to his grace. What does that mean? Well, he says we rejoice in our hope of the sharing of the glory of God. We share in the glory of God, of God again. He abides in us and we abide in him. We're talking about coming back to the garden, coming right back. The Spirit looks to God with faith, love, and hope now. No longer selfishness. And this is the state where God can attach Himself to us, and our spirit can rise from the dust and reign as it was supposed to. And finally, if we look in verse 5, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, which has been given to us. And Paul shows the Holy Spirit is present and facilitates all of this. So let's, let's get this drawn up, though, because Paul's about to talk. It's not exactly like that. It's pretty dang close, though. So what Paul has said is we have the Spirit and... The Holy Spirit. And then under this now is the soul and the spirit. However, um, and all of this is within us, um, the passions are still around here. The passions are still close at hand. We can't say that the passions have completely left us yet. But we can say that there's room for God to abide in us and for us to abide in God again. So let's connect those circles. Yeah? And so let's address 
Let's continue to move forward. So um, at the bottom of the chapter, oh, so yeah, notice in verse 3, um, there's a little bit about suffering, isn't there? There's a little bit about suffering. And I'm sure you're curious what that's all about. If we're saved, why are we talking about suffering still? <laughs> um, you know, it could apply to persecution, but unfortunately, that's the, the pesky passions that we were discussing earlier. And the fact that we have redemption, um, the fact is that we have redemption, but what we don't have is character. And what Paul says is the only thing that can produce character is endurance. And by this, he means that we have to have endurance in resisting the passions that still haunt us. And this is called bearing fruit in keeping with repentance, what John the Baptist called us to, right? Yes, repentance is a first and one-time act, but it's also a prolonged stage of character development that can last the rest of your life. And so let's now continue and jump to Romans 7. And just for me to add, if character development is long-term, if repentance is long-term, then fasting is not a short-term thing. Fasting is character development. It is long-term along with us here. So at the bottom of chapter 7 and verse 14, we're going to continue to explore this relationship with the passions. We read um, from Paul, he says that we know that the law is spiritual. And by this he means... Um, well, he means a lot by that, by saying the law is spiritual. But for our purpose, he does mean that doing what God declares lawful and good necessitates a strong spiritual life. Right? So, he says, we know that the law is spiritual. But I am carnal, sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do now if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good. So then it is no longer I that do it, but sin dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells within me that is in my flesh, that is in my flesh. And I can do what is right, oh, I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I do. Gosh, it's frustrating, right? And now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I that do it, but the sin, the passions that dwell within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do what is right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, in my inmost self, which is your heart and your spirit, is what he's talking about there. But I see in my members, which is the rest of your body, 
and the associated desires. Another law is at war with the law of my mind and making me a captive to the law of sin, which dwells in my members. You see how much body, soul, spirit, talk is in this. Um, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I of myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So I think this stands true to it, right? He says our spirit still communes with God. It's still, you still can sense we're not blocked out. Um, We're not so self-absorbed. We've learned, Paul is saying that he's learned to look beyond himself. However, um, I think it is fair to say that the passions, there's still something binding us to the passions right there. You see this? And so, um, let's unpack some of just the essentials here. Um, um, yeah, there's that, that, that you, we are talking about our spirit having been redeemed, but we are talking about, um, the passions actually hold the process up, right? The passions, while we want to pursue God, the passions continue to stop us and we continue to do the things that we do not want to do, Right? so he says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And so the passions actually, oh, look at that. I kind of forgot something there. I didn't even intentionally do that. That was kind of clever. Um, The passions are where? They're in the body. They're in the body. I didn't even mean to do that. Thank you, Lord. Um, And so, therefore, we are in the middle of two existences which are on the board. And uh, it's going into practice, right? We're in the middle of this and this in some real respects. We're in the middle. We're not fully, we're not fully back to this. This is really just a, a, a real big smorgasbord, if you can tell. <laughs> but, um, oh man. Yeah. Excuse me, guys. So, um, you have your spiritual existence and you have your fleshly one. And I think what Paul is trying to get to is that there is a practice. There's a struggle and there's a spiritual, there's spiritual exercises that develop your ability to push through this confused state and ultimately Become what God saved you to become, which is being back in the garden. Okay? And that's fasting. Hint, hint. But um, maybe you're asking why God didn't just fix all of this at once. Well, that's because if he's going to let you have a free will, have a free soul, right? Um, then, then he, might, he might have done excessive work on the cross to give you freedom to overcome and be victorious over sin and passions. But ultimately, if you're going to be free, you have to be free. If you're going to be free, only you can fix what you're free to do. And so, 
there's room for us to struggle, to practice, to get invested in our own spiritual life, to actually exert ourselves in coming to God. God has brought himself to us, but have we brought ourselves back to God fully? Right? And what he's obviously saying is, if you haven't taken care of your flesh, you haven't put that in check, at least practiced, you're still struggling. And that's normal. And um, with time, we can get to a point where we might soon walk in this newness of life. And that is why in uh, verse 12, he, oh, look at me, I've really jumped around. So, um, how is this to be done? Um, let's go ahead and look at... Um, oh, no, actually, let's do this real quick. Let's go to Romans 7, verse 3. Um, and you'll see that um, Paul says, Do you not know that those of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried Therefore, with him by baptism into his death. Did you say that was six? Yeah, sorry. Um, six, three. Six, three. Do you not know that those of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into his death in order that Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, that we too might walk in newness of life. And this is literally why he can say, let not sin reign in your mortal body. And do not let it make you obey the passions. He says that in verse 12. So how is this done? We cooperate with the Holy Spirit who continues to support us with grace and life as we um, quite actually rebel against the oppression of the passions in our body. And this is our prolonged repentance that builds our character, which I now recall Paul adds, character produces hope. And because God's love will overcome this mess in the human condition, um, this is what it means that Christ, uh, this is what Christ promised when he said, you will trample on serpents. He meant that the passions belong down here and these will be erased. I mean, you might have thought that snakes were really that big of a problem, but no, like he meant you will trample down the passions. Um, So what does this look like? Well, it comes down to what you give authority to. Um, Do you submit yourself as obedient to the flesh or to the Holy Spirit? Paul shows us in Romans 8, which immediately follows the scripture about our two conflicting modes of being. He talks about two types of law. And by law, imagine he means what you submit to. We all submit to laws. So by laws in Romans 8, he's going to be talking about what you submit to, what you let lead you. And so in Romans 8, starting in verse 1, he says, There is therefore 
now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. That is God's Holy Spirit in that instant. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, meaning their soul, their psyche, seeks to preserve the passions of the body, right? But he continues, those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit, meaning our mind, our psyche, seeks to serve God once it starts to participate with the Holy Spirit. And continue on in verse 6, to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh. You are in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells within you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although your bodies are dead because of sin, your spirits are alive because of righteousness, which means your spirit is revitalized. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies, also through his spirit which dwells in you. And he continues, and I just want to grab this last paragraph. So then, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to, to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of sonship. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is the Spirit himself bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. And so first, what sticks out to me is just how beautiful is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That he encourages us, bearing witness with our spirit, declaring that we are children of God, and he gives us life, which strengthens us to go to war. Some days this section is just the best. Um, sorry, I couldn't cut myself off there. I didn't know where to stop. It's just so good. Um, but notice that Paul um, said that provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. There's your proof that resisting our sins and our passions uh, 
is a blessed form of suffering that actually joins us to Christ. I mean, let us not forget that Christ suffered with a 40-day fast himself. No food. It literally says no bread, no water. I'm pretty sure it says no water even. Like, it's intense. (laughs) Um, And that precluded him destroying Satan, the arbiter of the passions. And all I can say is may we suffer with him and at least simplify our food, right? Um, Verse 13, we can go there. It says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And so here's your choice. Your body can have control over your spirit or your revitalized spirit can stand again by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is your choice. One will lead you to God. The other will lead you back into the passions. Even though you've been saved, things are still tentative here. And so we have to rely on the Holy Spirit ultimately, right? Um, He says in um, verse 13, he says, if by the Spirit... You put to death the deeds of your body, you will live. And notice, what does he say? If by the Spirit, who puts to death the deeds of the body? You put to death the deeds of the body. You will live. So I'm not trying to say that, you know, you're saved by works. Your salvation has already happened at this point. Um, God has infinite patience and mercy and strength to help you figure this out. But Paul is very clear right here. If by the Holy Spirit, who you got through, who you gained through salvation, you go and put to death the deeds of the Spirit, you will live. And this is where fasting fits in. Basically, it deals with the fact that we're still in a conflict and we still need to overcome the body and we still need to plant our spirit in God so it can't be moved anymore. And so... We took this way so you could really experience just how important your body is in the story of your redemption back to the original state. If we don't figure out how to get our body involved in this, then we're not going to find our way back to Eden. And so I think it's pretty obvious. What's the tool for correcting the body, for correcting the passions? at this point, right? Fasting. But it's not just one day we repent and all of this is overcome. It's a long-term habit of fasting. That is what we're looking for. It is not just one little spar with the passions, but we are constantly under attack from the passions. Are we not? So therefore, I can't think of a time when we may not need fasting. And Paul went into painstaking detail to make that pretty obvious that we have to get the body involved. And he even promises, right, that if you do this, he says, God gives life to your mortal bodies 
and it will dwell in wholeness again. There is a turning point for this, but it's not for the beginner and it's not for those who have avoided this. It's through this wrestling with our passions and it's, and we wrestle with the passions by wrestling with our body. And the more we do this, the more we finally come into rest, stillness, where the passions no longer can tempt us, where the passions can't um, bring us down into a new fall, but we are established in our relationship with God. And it's not just that we're established, but really what this is and what I want you to see is fasting is this exercise that lets us train the body to get back into its original state, right? But ultimately, behind fasting is the ever-deepening of our spiritual life, the ever-deepening of our peace, the more deepening of our revelation of the love of God, the more deepening of our experience of peace, hope, and joy, and love, which God promised us, right? Because we're getting the body out of the way and we're letting the soul now serve the spirit. And the spirit sees very clearly the love of God for us. Yeah? And so this is how we start moving from glory to glory, as Paul says. And as we become more spiritual, we become more closer to God. And fasting has given us the ability to move from being carnal into being spiritual. And this is simply God drawing us into himself step by step. God is drawing us into heaven. He's drawing us into what Paul describes as a mystical marriage to God. And through this bond, we become intimately bound to him. So much so that Paul says in 1 Corinthians um, 12, 9, that we become one spirit with God. And fasting is your tool to that end. And at that end, there is the blessings of God. But may we get the flesh out of the way first. And so as I close, I want to give some very simple principles for fasting. All right, three, very fast. Um, first, fasting without prayer is like preparing your garden, getting rid of the weeds, getting it fertilized, and then never actually planting a seed. If you fast without praying, you cultivate everything, you get the spirit ready to, to flourish, but you never actually plant the seed. And if you pray without fasting, what do you think happens? The weeds eat up. The weeds overrun your seed. This is to satisfy. This is to help your prayer. Um, our, third, our third point here, or second, fasting is supposed to be done for your sanctification, not for your pride, right? He says, do it in secret. A good way of gauging whether you're doing it for your sanctification or your pride is to use um, moderation, but make sure that you fast enough so that you struggle, so that um, you feel that you're actually having that revolt against the flesh, right? 
but not so much that you feel like you have to talk about struggling, right? Because I do that all the time. I, I did that last Lent. I, I imposed a very like a pretty harsh fast on myself, and I would catch myself talking to people all the time, like, "Oh, my fast is killing me. My fast is killing me." Well, it's like someone, you know, quit being proud, Tyler. Quit being proud. Um, so if you fast so much that you have to talk about it, you, you've been proud, right? Um, and finally, um, to build on the idea that this is a part of our long-term project of repentance, um, this is something to be used consistently. And um, that can be done in a lot of ways. Brandon and I, we like to do it on Wednesday and Friday, and there's good reasons for that. Christ was betrayed on Wednesday, crucified on Friday. Great reasons to fast, right? We live that over and over again. Um, But um, it's an experiment, ultimately. Experiment with when you fast, how often you fast, what food you can be allowed to neglect. Some of y'all have dietary restrictions and I wouldn't dare tell you to, to how to fast, right? Like experiment with it and figure it out over long-term practice. What, what is right for you? What God has called you to, what is purifying you and sanctifying you. And, um, I'll close with this. David, when he fell into sin with Bathsheba, he then participated in an absolutely supernatural fast. It was at least seven days without water. You can't do that. Um, And during this time, he wrote Psalm 51. And there he said that he wants to offer to God, not a whole burnt offering, but a sacrifice of righteousness. A sacrifice of righteousness. And it's my opinion that his fast inspired such a line. And so please let us at least figure out what our what we can sacrifice, what we can offer to God so we may stand in righteousness before him. And just let that be your fast.